Hello, and welcome to RD and the Inbetweens. I'm your host, Kelly Priest, and every fortnight I talk to a different guest about researchers, development, and everything in between. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of RD in the Inbetweens and this our 11th episode in the Decolonising Research series. In this episode we're going to hear from University of Exeter PhD student Shibani Das with her presentation Decolonising National Heritage, how Indian museums and cultural spaces are addressing their colonial pasts. This is a conversation that's been happening for uh, about 10 years uh, quite strongly within the Indian so the subcontinent. Um, and it addresses a couple of issues branching from changing syllabus to changing architecture to changing public attitudes about our colonial past. So who am I to speak to you about all this? Um, this is just to outline that I would be speaking to you not from a political perspective, but from a professional one. I have, um, I'm currently an AHRC-CDP doctoral candidate at the University of Exeter. I'm partly funded by BT Archives, but my Professional training back in India has been uh, in and around uh, museums and uh, organizations that deal with cultural spaces. So just a list of uh, the places that I have worked at. And um, I have been closely associated with the government of India as well as private organizations. So the following five slides will just be an insight to what I have experienced and would not be sort of a blanket statement I would be making across India. I'm sure there would be many people in the conversation who want to have their own points of views, and I welcome that um, towards the end of the um, presentation. I've mentioned my email ID and my e-profile, so I'll be happy to continue this conversation sometime later as well. But having said that, let's um, carry on. So to begin with, I would like to talk to you about what decolonization means in the Indian perspective. Uh, across the past month, we've been having conversations about decolonization in the academic space or in the research space or how to how we deal with decolonization within the archive. But decolonization as a national conversation has taken a different route in India completely. So uh, the three main components of this conversation that I recognize are the politician or the museums or cultural spaces and the academic space. So for a large part of Indian political history, the conversation has gone from the right-hand side to the left-hand side. What I mean by that is from the academic space through the cultural space into the political space. There was a large academic conversation about when decolonization began. A lot of British historians believe that it began when the empire began to crumble. So this is second world war onwards um, in the process of decolonization. Indian academicians did not appreciate how much focus was given to the British as actors in this conversation. So when the British decided to leave India, that was a process of decolonization. But sort of nationalist historians or subaltern or post-colonial historians began arguing about was that decolonization would actually be the process of independent India shedding the layers of its colonial past which pushes the timeline back to 1950s to 1970s and the opening up of the Indian economy, opening up of the Indian polity to the larger world. This had an impact on cultural spaces and how they were designed, which led to how politics was designed um, with regards to our colonial past. 
but ever since 2014 um there has been a switch in how the indian public and how the indian government understands this the conversation has switched course and start moving from the from the from the left to the right there is a there is a major sort of very tangible political movement to change or to manipulate or to um edit uh, how indians uh, think of their past or react to their past and that political change has impacted cultural spaces and internal academic spaces um this sort of two way conversation is quite an interesting one that we will discover more with the examples that come ahead so i've taken the liberty of sort of <laughs> condensing condensing this conversation down to three simple steps i do re realize this is very reductive but to have a good conversation i feel some reduction is essential so three steps for desi decolonization how would i as the government of india or as india talk about decolonization and my approach to it uh, number one you remove remove any um, selectively remove any tangible remnants of one's colonial past if you can't remove it then you appropriate the symbolism the conversation that we would be having would be around um uh, the, uh, the india gate and this uh, coronation park in uh, new delhi and we'll go ahead and talk about that in a bit number two is you rewrite or you <clears throat> rename um whatever you can't um change immediately so here we have conversations about rewriting how people react to uh, your history or learn their histories be it through syllabus in schools or in universities or in how we interact with history on a day to day basis for example road names metro station names um museum names etc and step number 3 which is the final step which is almost in completion right now in delhi is rebuild undertake massive and drastic construction projects to change the historical landscape now these steps in my opinion happen over a long period of time you have to begin to corrode a public's reaction or relationship with their history to be able to take a drastic step like rebuilding a construction or a tangible space so the first conversation i'd like to have with you in the first case study we'd like to discuss is remove right so um on the left hand side of this presentation you see a very interesting uh, sculpture from uh, the coronation park in north delhi it was built in 1911 uh, on the right hand side a very familiar symbol of indian um, democracy which is india gate built in 1921 in new delhi um the coronation park is a very interesting park it is largely abandoned it is not um uh it's not in the center of the city it's not celebrated it's not the focus of civic life in that area it is sort of a graveyard of sculptures that uh, at the at the moment of independence when we had a lot of imperial sculptures across the city on road crossings and the government did not know what to do with it they just picked everything up and they deposited it in one land where the royal darbar was held in 1911 but when approaches when one approaches the park today what one sees is just streams and streams of magnificent imperial sculptures left in complete abandonment taken from taken out of where they were originally designed for out of that context um and 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 not sort of responded to or agreed with or addressed by any uh, any any person crossing the road so that's one way of dealing with decolonization that was when india did not know what to do with its past so it decided to pick everything up and push it sort of like under the carpet or in a cupboard that you never want to open ever again this park still exists and most of these sculptures are an absolute ruin this 
is an example of one way of how one can deal with one's colonial past. If you can't remove the colonial symbol, you can reappropriate the meaning of that colonial symbol, which, come, which brings me to India Gate, uh, possibly one of the most iconic uh, symbols of Indian democracy, or Delhi at least. India Gate is uh, a celebration of uh, everybody who had uh, passed away uh, fighting for the British Empire in the First World War. It is an imperial symbol. It is, an, it, is a power, it is a symbol of all those Indians who lost their lives, not for Indian freedom, but for British freedom. Uh, however, this does not um, sit heavy on uh, an, uh, a common Indian person's uh, mind. Uh, the, appro the appropriation of the symbol has been so complete that it is um, it's visible on most sort of tourist banners. It's, 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 it's the center of our public day celebrations. It is something that all Indians will in the evenings come and sit next to, celebrate a very sort of personal relationship with it. You will have ice cream vendors walking up and down the street, uh, kids playing. Uh, it's a very open space where everybody can walk in. And it is understood to be a symbol of reverence and respect for one's past, not, not majorly sort of associated with our colonial history. So these are two ways that India has um, dealt with uh, sort of these major symbols of its colonial history. I spent a lot of time trying to wonder what causes this selection, why the India Gate did not have the same, uh, did not suffer the same uh, destiny as sculptures within the Coronation Park. And the only thing that comes to mind is that it wasn't that you can't physically remove it and you can't physically break it down. But I'll be happy to, to uh, know what you guys would feel about this as well. The second idea is to rewrite and to rename. Now, these are two heavy ideas that are on the same slide, uh, but they have a similar logic behind them. So um, there has been a move to rewrite history, uh, not just within the larger academic historiography, but also within how schools and students understand or learn their histories. So the two, the two major examples I can give you are the NCERT school syllabus changes and the undergraduate course changes. Within the school syllabus changes, we've had a series of educational reforms that have removed ideas like, um, say, caste politics or Mughal history or uh, communal uh, rioting or communal violence in Indians in Indian in the Indian past. There's also been a move, a, a fairly political move, to uh, suppress the role of the Congress in the independence movement. Just to give a little bit of a background, Congress was the larger political force that has been. Uh, largely defeated now by the current incumbent government, which is the BJP. Um, so uh, ideas like, for example, quotes from Nehru have been removed. Uh, the role of, role of Gandhi in certain movements has been reduced in text. Um, even as far as population data about how many Hindus versus how many Muslims live in a country or uh, how their, their employment rates have been smudged uh, in school the textbooks. Now we need to understand the sort of um, the sanctity with which a normal school child or a, or a sort of a parent would regard what is written in a text. Given that it is published by the government, it is considered to be of a certain value that cannot be questioned uh, and has to be mugged up and used for like school learning or passing exams. So the level of questioning that happens at this level is very minimal, which makes changes like this very dangerous. These changes get expounded when one reaches the undergraduate courses. Uh, over the last five years, the undergraduate courses for history learning for, for the BA in history has been has changed drastically. 
Um, just one example that I'd like to begin with is changing the name uh, of, say, history of India to history of Bharat or Bharat Vash, um, which is sort of a more Indic or more Hinduistic a Hindu approach to looking at the history of, um, of, of India. There's also been a move to sort of have courses that are titled um, Indus Valley Civilization, Saraswati Civilization, and its Vedic connection. So when you have courses titled like this, there's an assumption that Vedic history or Hindu history um, goes back as far as Indus Valley Civilization, um, which is not a historical fact, but I think through strategies like titling, like making titles like this or making courses like this, uh, a, a lot of students would not be able to exercise their ability to critic, critically address this issue or critically understand uh, the politics behind these kind of changes. You also have changes in the administration of colleges. You have, uh, in the recent past, we've had a massive change in um, the, the removal of certain deans or principals who don't agree with political changes happening across the country. And those who are ideologically inclined tend to find themselves in positions where they can control, for example, which PhD thesis gets passed or which PhD um, application is successful. So um, you have sort of a systematic change and a, and a syllabus change happening at the same time. On the right hand side, it's a very interesting list. Initially, I was thinking of doing an entire background of just the number of name changes that have happened in India across. And this is just a small summary of it. It's a conglomeration of city, city name changes, road name changes, museum name changes, and it's color coded. So um, when I was looking at this list, I was trying to break down the logic behind it. And I found a three-way logic. The first is changing a name from a British name to a secular name. Uh, the second is from a Mughal name or a Muslim name to a Hindu name. And the third is from a imperial name to a Hindu name. As you can see that there's a large movement towards making every name more Indic or more Hindu. And the definition of Indic is largely becoming uh, a non-Muslim or a, or a isolationist, like a, a separational uh, change. So I've just made a color, I've just made a color coding happening. So everything in blue is your secular changes. So how Kingsway has been renamed to Rajpath, Queensway to Janpath, all of these names are largely understood to be um, a common secular or common communal shared nomenclature. But as we move on to everything in yellow or everything in white, you see either a change from, for example, um, the way the most interesting one was the Mughal Museum but that was changed to Chhatrapati Shivaji Museum in 2020, which is a very recent example. This museum was to be built in Agra, which was a city made by Akbar, a Mughal ruler. It was supposed to champion um, the Mughal contributions to Indian culture, such as miniature painting or architecture. But uh, in 2020, after the museum was already in construction, uh, the chief minister of the particular state announced that the name has to change initially to Braj Museum, which is a local Indic population or the language population. And later it was argued that you would have uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji, who is a, a, a very strong Maratha, Maratha figure from uh, Maharashtra, West India. So uh, this is a trend that we all see happening very often. There are tangible repercussions to these trends where you have a lot of financial investment in changing names uh, in road places as well. But mostly what it does is it tries to manipulate or change how the public addresses or reacts to history on a day-to-day -day basis. The second uh, idea is 
rebuilding. And this is something that I feel very pers uh, personally sort of passionate about these two particular projects. And they are very recent projects. Um, the idea of rebuilding is when you have managed to have sort of, I feel, discrete changes to how public reacts to their history or public understands their history, you've taken the time of changing the syllabus, you've taken the time of changing the road names, slowly you are corroding how the population is reacting or responding to their own past. What you can then do is commission large scale projects which uh, undertake massive construction uh, either breaking down and rebuilding or building once again. And there is a trend in the recent past that uh, is creating a, a lot more like that there's, that India is moving to a more aggressive symbolic front, a very aggressive um, nationalistic sort of jingoistic uh, front that they are putting across. Uh, this there are many examples of this one way one common example that a lot of Indians uh, uh, who have um, joined this conversation will be familiar with is something called the angry Hanuman motif. There was there is a deity called Hanuman. Uh, he's a part of the larger epic of Ramayana, which is an ancient epic in India. He's the symbolism of that figure has changed in the recent past. Initially, he was a symbol of loyalty of servitude of uh, bravery and always depicted in a sort of uh, amicable manner in paintings. Um, in the recent past, in the past five years, there was a graphic artist in the South of India who created a sort of a more aggressive, muscled version of the same deity. And before you knew it, that symbol sort of spread across the subcontinent at a speed that nobody predicted. Uh, I be it either in car stickers or in WhatsApp profile photos, um, it began to be adopted by a large population in India because they began at some level responding positively to this change of attitude or change of nature to a more aggressive, uh, a more sort of um, uh, nationalist or jingoistic front. But the two examples I've taken up over here the first is the central, the central Vista redesign project. Um, in, in September 2019, the government of India undertook a project. Uh, they made a certain announcement that they would uh, undertake major reconstruction on the Kingsway and the Queensway, erstwhile Kingsway and Queensway, now the Janpat and the Rajpat, which is in the center of Delhi, which is called Latians Delhi or Bakers and Latians Delhi, um, because of two reasons. The first was um, pragmatic reasons of, for example, government offices are very old buildings. They need remodeling. They need re. Um, um, they need to accommodate more people. They need to have uh, a lot more efficient working by putting everybody in one building. So all these pragmatic concerns that were coming up. The second reason was uh, sort of an ideological opposition to who designed this part of the city, uh, be it specifically Latians and Baker, being them specifically being British artists, um, architects, and the idea of the entirety of Central Delhi being a British project or a Brit British construction. And the government um, um, sort of expressed some concerns with um, how the British chose to depict or chose which aesthetic elements from which design, path, design history of India did they choose to incorporate and how the current India, the powerful current modern India should rebuild something that is more in tune with a more authentic Indian aesthetic. So uh, there was a large um, sort of 
pushed back to this decision uh, especially in a pre pandemic time there were protests happening about the level of construction that would be required um specifically in a time where india was suffering through a pandemic and needed uh, sources resources in other um, uh, in other parts of the uh, of the country um but the scale of this redesign was extremely massive um, from breaking down any building that is not a heritage site so anything built after 1950s would be broken down including the national museum the entire i mean central secretariat would be uh, evacuated and made into museums of freedom and democracy and a massive construction would take place that would eradicate all these parks and public spaces that you see on the site so um this project has sort of divided india a lot in the recent past uh, specifically with having sort of all academicians to one side and say um, a sort of a pushback from a more pragmatic part of india on the, on the other side and narayan gupta who's a very respected historian from delhi spoke about how um, janpath or rajpath was supposed was supposed to be a more like a more um, civic friendly space for example to allow a like a, a classless a casteless space for indian indians to come and enjoy um, their own city their own capital to come and have picnics here to have football games here to have uh, walks around uh, india gate was something that was supposed to be a very uh, common practice uh, amongst delhiites who would do this on a day to day basis however the the current project it plans to eradicate all these civic spaces and change Uh, a lot of what india uh, delhi sees as its uh, historical past or its landscape now it is an argument that uh, hasn't been decided as of yet the construction project is still ongoing um, but uh, one this is i feel one way of handling or decolonizing one one's own past is sort of pushing back and breaking down these remnants and then it brings the question of at what point do we stop at what point do we understand that we, like do we put a limit of how much we can go back into a purer version of indian past right the the next example that came out very recently uh, this month actually was the uh, the revealing of a new national symbol so on the parliament building on top of the parliament building we would have the ashokan uh, lion capital head uh, which you see on the left hand side this is from 250 bc from the ashokan empire uh, it was it sort of tops a entire pillar that was uh, the pillars that were uh, built up across india um on the left hand side you see a lion that is a lot more aesthetic it is uh, it shows us an idea of sort of protectiveness or or of pride as opposed to um uh as opposed to the right hand side that can that tone like in terms of tonality in terms of aesthetic shows a lot more of an aggressive militant or uh, sort of an anger uh, that was absent in how india perceived itself in the past now my personal uh, opinions aside there is a large a large conversation happening about this sort of tonal tonality change or aesthetic change that uh, one is noticing uh across india but uh, this is another example of how we are sort of decolonizing or uh changing how we want to be perceived across the world um which i found very very, very interesting however i mean i can i can understand how everybody would feel that i'm being very negative about this kind of changes so i've added a very nice slide about how i think that decolonization also has positive impact on how museums are per per pushing themselves so on the top you have 
um, the, my favorite museum in Delhi, which is the National Museum. As you can see, this is a picture from the basement. I think it's on um, early medieval um, crafts and constructions. I think that's what the gallery is called. As you can see, it's a very sort of old institution. There are large glass uh, cabinets separating the viewer from the artifact. Uh, it's air-conditioned, it's very sanitary, it's very imperial. Um, everything is shut off behind certain um, glass and, and wooden cabinets. Uh, Kavita Singh, who is the uh, head of department of arts and aesthetics department in JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University, has written a very nice article called The Museum is National, where she discusses the impact uh, or the influence of imperial thought on Indian history on how the National Museum itself is designed. So the initial galleries that you have are periodic galleries such as Indus Valley Civilization, uh, Maurya Shunga Satvahana, moving on to um, um, your early medieval, late medieval, but the moment Indian history starts approaching its Mughal phase, the National Museum changes its gallery's name to materiality. So it becomes from early medieval, late medieval, it becomes wooden architecture or metal work or musical instruments, almost in a way denying um, the Mughal aspect or the Islamic aspect of Indian history by how it's designed. Um, it's a very imperial institution. So also it sort of repels a lot of Indians from entering the institution who feel like they don't belong inside or they don't have a right to walk inside. So it does create a space of otherness. It does elevate civilized, I mean, culture to a sort of upper level of only being uh, accessible to the elite who feel like they can enter the museum and walk in whenever they want. On the bottom, we have a nicer, a much a much more different way of approaching Indian culture, which is the Arna Jharna Museum in Jodhpur. This is an open, open design museum uh, that celebrates village life and uh, broom and broom making. Uh, that's a local culture. Um, the space is a lot more welcoming to a larger class of Indians. It is a lot more spread out. It is more in tune with indigenous architecture and uh, indigenous weather. It also would, would have uh, employed a lot more locals in the construction and maintenance of the museum. So it does have a lot more specialized focus in terms of where um, the, lo the location or the locality of what it is celebrating, as opposed to a national, more, mostly sort of dominating, centralizing figure like the National Museum, which has captured the artifacts from across the Indian subcontinent. As the last slide to my conversation today, I mean, I'll be starting the starting to talk to you about opening up the conversation. I want to talk to you about the thin line between decolonization and recolonization. This is something that I began thinking about when I was thinking about how India is dealing with its past, where in order to address a past, we are trying to replace it with another idea of our history, which has very tangible repercussions on how future generations will see India and how future generations will think about India. So at what point uh, do we sort of white, like at what point do we fill the vacuum that decolonization that the idea of removing a colonial perspective of our past, at what point will that vacuum become so strong that we need to fill it with something else? Is that something that will always happen? Can we have an absence or can we have uh, can we deal as a people with a change in our, uh, how we perceive our history without putting another ideology on top of it and making sure that gets accepted. So when I think about how India is dealing with its colonial past, I feel that there are some negatives of how aggressively it is trying to do so. 
at the same time, I do believe that there are a lot of positives in the sense of making, uh, changing how we perceive design or how we perceive our cultural spaces, who it's supposed to be, who it's meant for, who, who understands or appreciates or, ex or is able to access it. But it is a thin line that we do need to discuss and uh, address at some point. Um, I do understand I've been speaking for a good 30 minutes now, uh, and I could go on for much longer, but I would like to now uh, open the field, uh, open the conversation up uh, to any questions that anybody might have. Uh, please feel free to use the chat or unmute yourself. Uh, we can talk about, I have a lot of examples uh, on my notes that I would love to discuss with you, and we can compare how other nations are dealing with it as well. But um, in the long list of lectures where I saw a lot of conversations about research and sort of African, sort of, I mean, African reactions, et cetera. I felt this conversation about how India is dealing with it in its own way was an important one to have. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a pleasure. And that's it for this episode. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and join me next time where I'll be talking to somebody else about researchers, development and everything in between. Thank you.